0: like I, hold your head up high, till you find the blue bird of happiness, you will find greater peace of mind, knowing there's a blue bird of happiness, and Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. This episode will be part two part two of my coverage of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Dick's 1968 novel. This is the only novel he published in that year. Um, so in the first part of, of the novel, in chapters one through four, we were introduced to Rick Deckard, a bounty hunter who hunts escaped androids who flee the, uh, the colonies and, and come to Earth, often to escape conditions essentially of slavery. Uh, but they're not wanted on Earth, so he his job is to is to kill them. Uh, he has a fight with his wife over what kind of mood she should be in for the day. She's a stay-at-home wife, and she spends much of her time at home depressed and watching TV. Um, but then he goes uh, to lo- check out his electric sheep, who he's very depressed to own because he'd much rather have a real animal, as do most people on Earth. That's the greatest dream um, people can have, is to own a real animal. So after being introduced to Rick Deckard, as he gets ready for work, we meet J.R.E. Sidor as he's trying to get to work. He lives all alone in an apartment complex, kind of in the suburbs. He's the only one left, and we get more of a feeling of just how empty the earth has become. The earth, most people of, of value, most people with who are able to, most people who are not sterile or not deemed quote-unquote special because of mental ailments have already fled earth for the, for the colonies where kind of earth society's been extended. Now, we don't learn much about the colonies, but it does seem that they are in a much better state than, than earth. His job is to drive a veterinarian van, even though it's a fake veterinarian van. He works for a company that repairs broken electric animals, but the, the fact that his van is uh, labeled as a veterinarian is just to make his customer, not to expose his customers as owners of electric animals. He's a special, he's a chicken head, uh, and he's sterile, uh, and he lives alone. He clutches, the before going to work though, he clutches the handles of the empathy box, and we see what happens to one when they hold the black box of the, of the empathy box. This is a major device in this novel. It, it's kind of a little bit quite, actually quite a lot, lot like the experience described in the short story, The Black Box here it's kind of developed a little bit more. What happens when one holds an empathy box is they experience Mercer's climb up, the, up a, a hill where he's pummeled by rocks, but they experience it as Mercer and as everyone else who's holding the empathy box at the time, sharing their emotions. That's why it's called an empathy box. We also learn a little about Mercer's background through Isidore's empathic connection with them. Uh, at the end of the chapter, he learns that a neighbor has moved in. Deckard then goes to work and he learns that his uh, the other bounty hunter in the police station has failed in his task of retiring eight Nexus six, which are kind of the newest level of the newest model of Android. But these have escaped. There's eight of them. He's retired two of them. The other six have gotten away. One of them, Polokoff, has shot this man Holden. And so Rick Deckard has gotten this contract to retire these six androids. This is a great moment for Rick Deckard because now if he retires these six, he'll have enough money to buy an an animal. Uh, We learned that the major way that Deckard and other bounty hunters identify androids is through the empathy test. However, there's a big question whether these new Nexus 6s can be identified with uh, the standard empathy test. So he flies off to Seattle to meet the, the head of the Rosen Corporation to engage in a test, a kind of controlled experiment with these next to six androids to see if they can differentiate androids from humans based on this, this empathy test. And that's where, we, that's where we left off. So in chapter five, um, Rachel Rosen, who's the, like the niece of, of the head of the corporation, Mr. Rosen, is volunteered to be the first test in this, this kind of staged empathy test, this, this kind of um, experiment to see if the empathy test still works for Nexus, sixes and decker what deckard wants to have is like some humans and some androids in the test so it's mixed up and then to see if the test can still differentiate them now what's really happening here in this chapter in chapter five is that the Rosen Corporation is trying trying to discredit the empathy test because they don't want these bounty hunters killing the androids anymore Um, now they're going to justify the nexus six and possibly more advanced androids in the future in various ways but it comes down to they don't want their products being being destroyed so this is all a facade being put put up there so but rick Deckard goes along with it at this point and he starts to engage in the empathy test with rachel rosen it involves shooting a light beam into the eye of the other person and then asking a series of questions one really has to wonder how on the field this is often done because the you have to give the empathy test if you want to retire an android you can't just suspect and shoot them. Although these bounty hunters seem to have a gut feeling about who's androids, and they're often right, they still have to go through the process of engaging in the empathy test. One can imagine how difficult it is to actually sit an android down and get them to go along with this. We see Rick Decker doing things like pretending to be work for a company, doing a standard personality test. We also learn later on that one of the ways the government does this is just random tests of everyone, kind of like almost sobriety tests, where People will randomly be stopped, given empathy tests, and this is a way to kind of fish out uh, specials, but also to fish out uh, any possible androids. So they go through the empathy test, and it's mostly questions involving animal rights. So the way it will work is Deckard will tell a story, like about how you, you like go into a man's apartment and you see he's got a picture of a bullfight. Or you go into a restaurant and you see people eating dog. And he goes through these various tests. I'll just give you an example of one of them. Yeah, we'll do the dog one. He says, a final question, two part. You're watching an old TV, old movie on TV and from before the war, it shows a banquet in, pros- in progress. The guests are enjoying raw oysters. The entree consists of a boiled dog stuffed with rice. The needles moved less this time, less than they had for the raw oysters. Are raw oysters more accessible to you than a dish of boiled dog? Evidently not. He put his pencil down, shut off the beam of light. Remove the adhesive patch from his cheek. You're an android, he said. That's the conclusion of the testing. End quote. So this is the final question that leads him to conclude that Rachel Rosen is an android. But it's a series of like six or seven or eight questions that are supposed to elicit this emotional response. And if they don't, you know, then that that's a sign you're... An android. Now, it seems that these androids are capable of faking an emotional response, but they do it slower, and they do it in ways that this test can sort of pick up on, or a skilled bounty hunter can, can pick up on. So that's the empathy test, and, it's, and it, he concludes that Rachel Rosen is an android. But they say, Rosen says, no, she's not. She's a human. She's not an android. She's just a special type of human who kind of was born on a spaceship, Never had proper human upbringing, wasn't really raised in regular human society, and she's developed kind of a schizoid personality disorder, right? I think I talked a little bit about the schizoid personality disorder in the last episode. It's essentially a personality disorder based on like a lack of, of compassion for other people, a lack of ability to make connections with other human beings. It's a personality disorder that Dick was really interested in because for him, empathy is so important to being human that the fact that there are humans that are capable are, are incapable of empathy. Now I don't know if schizoids don't have empathy. I mean, I think I, I read the definition and there's nothing in there specifically about empathy, but the way Dick understood it is schizoids are human, would have been humans who don't have empathy. And this really bothered him in this kind of quest to kind of define humanity. We'll, we'll talk more about this certainly in this novel and also in We Can Build You, which I think it was written before this, but it was published later. So we'll talk about it then. Um, so he concludes she's an android. He, he he says she's not and so this is supposed to expose the test as faulty because if it's going to Pick up possible humans then the bounty hunters might accidentally retire humans And therefore the test has to be thrown away now Rosen's intention in doing this is he wants to get rid of the test altogether He doesn't want the bounty hunters. He wants the bounty hunters essentially out of business they talk a little bit about the surveillance state in the world at the time which is a way of kind of grabbing up all of these, you know, testing everyone at some point in their life with the empathy test to, to kind of separate them into specials, androids or, or normals. Deckard, though, really gets into a debate with Rosen here, stands up to him. And it's kind of impressive, actually, Rosen being such a big industrialist and Deckard just being a, a cop. But he accuses Rosen of basically making robots purposefully that, will, that cannot be dis- discovered. Right. And we get kind of an interesting corporate view of technology here, um, which, you know, when a new technology is 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 developed, you know, whether it's the iPad or the cell phone or, or or face recognition software or whatever it is, it's usually just developed and then implemented without full debate or consideration of the ethical moral consequences of this new technology and i I think it's it's an issue with democracy right we think we live in a democratic society but much of what affects our lives is decided by the marketplace which you know it's debatable whether that's democratic or not on the one hand we vote with our feet vote with our dollars but on the other hand certainly a handful of corporations control a disproportionate amount of the marketplace and so that's um, far from democratic very important decisions that affect our lives are made in boardrooms So it's it's an issue of democracy here. And this is something that's really bothering Rick Deckard. And Rosen makes this defense. We produced what the colonists wanted. We followed the time-honored principle underlaying every commercial venture. If our firm hadn't made these progressively more human types, other firms in the field would have. We know the risks we were taking when we developed the Nexus 6 brain unit. But your Vaunt camp test was a failure before we released that type of android. If you had failed to classify a next 6 android as an android, if you had checked it out as human, but that's not what happened. Your police department, as well as others, may have retired, very will probably have retired authentic humans with underdeveloped empathic abilities, such as your innocent niece here. End quote. So he does two things here. One is he blames the, the regulators for, for not doing a good job. He turns it around on them. But mostly he says, I'm just doing what the market demands, the, which isn't entirely what really happens in the marketplace, it seems to me. You know no one needed, no one demanded the iPad before the iPad was invented. right I guess you had Picard with his tablet, but you know, I don't know how many people saw that and said I need that immediately. It was the iPad was invented and then Apple went about making a market for it through advertising and, and other other techniques. So I think Rosen's being a bit disingenuous here, but it comes down to the morality of technology and to what degree should we as societies, filter what technologies come in, right? Of course, the Amish are a great example of a society that tries to make this decision with every technology, really tries to decide what are going to be the long-term impact of a particular technology on our society, and therefore, should we let it in or not? Um, Now, they don't really convince Deckard, so they start to try to bribe him with an owl. He saw this owl before, and they promised him an owl. They said, as long as you let us have the brood, any children or any chicks that the owl produces you can have this this owl and they kind of haggle back and forth but then Deckard gets an idea in his head and he says let me ask Rachel one more question so he resets up the empathy test and he asks her a question which which basically involved him having a baby hide briefcase and this doesn't elicit an empathic empathic response from Rachel and he realized at this point that they were lying to him and that Rachel Rosen actually is an android and it was all a scheme to try to discredit the the Voigt-Camp test. They also then, after their kind of their gig is up, they Rosen admits that the owl was fake as well. So he leaves this meeting with the Rosens, confident in the test, confident that he can identify the Nexus Sixes. Might be more difficult, but he thinks he can do it. And he also gets a promise from Rachel Rosen that if you need help, give with these next to Six. I'll help you. You know, and Deckard has very little reason to trust her after what just happened. But that kind of offer is out there, and it's going to come up later in the story. Okay, so chapter six. Um, chapter six is about J Jarius Sidor, and he he still hasn't left for work. He has decided to go visit his neighbor, who he's heard has just moved in. This is Pris Stratton, this is one of the androids that Rick Deckard is is going to be ch- chasing throughout the the novel, uh, but he doesn't know that. And it takes uh, Sidor quite a while to figure out that sh- she's an android, and this is not because he's stupid. And I think there's a lot of evidence here that he's not that stupid. He's not really as much of a chicken head as he's been labeled. Uh, he's like, for instance, very creative on the concept of Kipple. He's not the inventor of the Kipple concept, but he, he very much, um, has kind of developed it and given it kind of a philosophy. Um, but it just shows us how good these androids are. And and they're a bit off. And the androids are always a bit off. Even Rachel Rosen in Chapter 5, when she answers the questions, there's something a bit off about her. But th- we've met people that are off this way. I mean, that's not like that's unheard of among humanity. So it's very easy for these androids to kind of um, filter in. I mean, they're essentially biologically just like humans. The only thing they lack is the empathy. Um, so he goes to knocks on the door right and he starts they start to talk about things and one thing they talk about is buster friendly they talk about mercerism and they talk about kipple and that that covers most of this chapter is their various conversations on these topics now i'm going to say more about this in a little bit but there's a really clear contrast that dick is trying to make between buster friendly and his friendly friends which is one type of media available that's what's on the that's what's on the boob tube is Buster Friendly and his Friendly Friends hours and hours of content every day. Um, in fact, too much for any human to do produce on his own. It's it's even suggested pretty early on that he's not human, and it's confirmed later on that that he's an android as well. But uh, he is this, It's the synthetic plots of of popular television. It's the mass media. It's it's very in, it's it's kind of very individualist in this way. Even though it's kind of kinda got this collectiveness that all TV has, you know, everyone kinda watches the same nonsense, but they kind of do it as individuals, isolated individuals. And the Mercerism in the meanwhile gives us this authentic, empathic experience where we're actually joining with other people at an emotional and physical, you know, way. We actually feel the pain that they feel, including the pain that Mercer feels. So there's a really a judgment Dick is making against the Buster friendly and his friendly friends, even the ridiculous name of the show is Dick making fun of, of how preposterous this is. So they, they talk a little bit about this, and it seems the androids prefer Buster-friendly and his friendly friends, and they seem to be a little bit scornful of, of mercerism. But most of what this chapter is is they talk about the concept of Kipple. Kipple is essentially junk. It's trash. It's the stuff left over after the war. It's the stuff that builds up. Um, and here's what... Uh, Isidore knows this well. In fact, it's actually Buster Friendly who comes up with the term kipple. Many characters use it, and it's later determined to be Buster Friendly. But she doesn't know it. She's from Mars, so she doesn't have this concept of kipple. He explains: kipple is useless objects like junk mail and match folders after you use the last match or gum wrappers or yesterday's homeopape. When nobody's around, kipple reproduces itself. For instance, if you leave the bed, if you go to bed leaving kipple around the apartment, when you wake up the next morning, there's twice as much of it. It always is more and more. The first law of Kippel, Kippel drives out non-Kippel, like Gresham's law of bad money. And in those apartments, there's been nobody there to fight the Kippel. He later says, no one can win against Kippel, except temporarily, maybe in one spot, like in my apartment. I've sort of created a stasis between the pressures of Kippel and non-Kippel for the time being, but eventually I'll die or go away, and then Kippel will take over again. It's a universal principle operating throughout the universe. The entire universe is moving towards the final state of total absolute Kippelization. except of course for the upward climb of William Mercer, Wilbur Mercer. So Wilbur Mercer is the response to entropy, right? Actually, Kipple is obviously entropy. It's, it's it's something Dick has been obsessed with throughout his career, and this is just another variant of that type of um entropy. But it is he sees Mercer this kind of true authentic empathic experience as a true response to empathy and it's quite a brilliant um, observation on on his part in the conversation about Mercer and Kipple we get a sense of just how kind of off Pris is for instance when he asked her about the empathy box she doesn't really know what an empathy box is the black box she uh, you know she really doesn't know what it is and and Sudo is like really bothered that she doesn't know what it is. He's like, how could you not know what an empathy box is? And then he says, you know, Mercer doesn't care that I'm a chicken head. He doesn't care that I'm special. And Pris says, well, that's just more evidence that Mercer is completely, you know, wrong. Suggesting that there are natural hierarchies in life, which is contrary to Mercerism. There's a great equality in Mercer's philosophy that we're all kind of suffering together. We're all in this mess together. We're all climbing this hill together. We're all facing death together. Right, it's heavily implied that Mercer dies when he gets to the top of the hill. So by we're joint, we're all in this march to death together. So there's a basic equality there, but for Pris, there's not. There's there's natural hierarchies. So this is an important chapter. I, I do think this is one of the core chapters of the book, in that it expounds on Kipple and it really sets up this conflict between Buster Friendly and and Mercerism. Right now, obviously, this is all stuff that's not in. The film adaptation of this particular book So, you know, it's not even that They get kind of, kind of the android theme A little bit off, I think Because more or less it's, That part of it is okay I mean, Dick does acknowledge Android sus, um, Subjectivity Ambition, dreams even Right? What they lack is empathy, right? They're completely immoral Amoral and cruel And I guess the, the, the film version Sort of gets that right but it's missing the whole kind of broader context of the story, which is really rooted in the Buster-friendly, the, the Kipple theme, and, and Mercerism. And so th- in that way, this chapter is really important to, to developing all that. Um, they even, I think, write out the character of Isidore altogether in the film version. Um, so chapter 7, um, we're still with Isidore. He's finally gone off to work. And he's still thinking about the Buster Friendly versus Mercer sort of debate. And he kind of concludes that Pris is nuts. He says, she's completely out of touch, he thought as he donned his white work uniform. Even if he hurried, he'd be late to work. Mr. Sloat would be angry. But so what? For instance, she's never heard of Buster Friendly. And that's impossible. Buster is the most important human being alive, except, of course, for Wilbur Mercer. But Mercer, he reflected, isn't a human being. He evidently is an archetypal entity from the star, superimposed in our culture by a cosmic template. At least that's what I've heard people say. That's what Mr. Sloat says, for instance, and Hannibal Sloat would know. So he's still thinking about this and this is gonna come up throughout this chapter. So the main plot of this chapter, and I'll just go through it real quick, is he goes to pick up a sick cat. Now he works for an electronics repair shop. So normally they pick up electronic animals and fix them up, but they pretend to be vets. So not to embarrass the owners of the electric animals. Rick Deckard, for instance, obviously, you know, never let anyone know that he's got an electric sheep. So he picks up the sick cat, takes it there, and you see that Isidore immediately has empathy for this electric animal. There's a lot of um, moments throughout this chapter where he feels this, especially in the first half of this chapter, he feels empathy for this cat. He, He says, like, he talks to it, for instance, we'll recharge you when you're in a route. You know, later on, he says um, anyway, or this is a Dick writing anyway, not, it's not uh, Isidore's quoted spoken words. Anyway, he could no longer had to listen to the nerve wracking wheezing of the construct. He could relax. Funny, he thought, even though I know rationally, it's a fake sound of a false animal burning out its drivetrain and power supply my, ties my stomach in knots. I wish, he thought painfully, I could get another job. Quote. So he actually feels bad for these electronic animals. Now, of course, the twist is when he gets it to the shop, it's revealed that it's a real cat and it died. And partially because his suit thought it was an electronic cat and didn't really care for it properly. In fact, he wouldn't have known what to do with a real cat, it, it seems. Now, Arnold drive, would drive to his workplace, we are introduced to the concept of human kipple, or at least living kipple. That's that's the way Dick writes it here. Is, is living kipple. Um, this is an important theme, I think, in the book. And I, I think, to some degree, everyone living on Earth in this novel is a form of living kipple. And it's more or less said so directly on this page. This is. Um, um, here's what's written. Nothing depressed him more than the moments in which he contrasted his current mental powers with what he had formerly possessed. Every day he declined in sagacity and vigor. He and the thousands of other specials throughout all of them moving towards the ash heap, turning into living kipple. And I'm reminded here of Zygmunt Bauman's book, Wasted Lives, which is really about the human kipple of, of global capitalism the people who have left, be- left behind, the people living in slums, the people who make their living digging out of trash bins, the people who there's not really space for in an economy that's more and more mechanized, more and more automated, more and more technocratic. And millions of people are being left behind and becoming really the waste elements. And you know, Sidor is one of these, right? He gets the only job he can get, right? He's he can't go to Mars. He's stuck in this dying world. And that's his fate is to sim- simply to be human kipple. But that's kind of the fate of everyone on Earth in this novel. There's really no future for them. Maybe a few can emigrate, but by and large, they're all sort of stuck there. Now, to reconfirm how, just how clever and creative J.R. Isidore is, is he starts to really realize that Buster Friendly and Mercerism are in a war. It's something we, we know as readers already, but he figures it out pretty early. And he actually calls them that, he says that they're fighting for our psychic souls. Um, another thing, both seem to be immortal, right? It seems that, that Buster Friendly can produce 48 hours of TV, a day or something. I guess there's two channels. I, I, and, you know, Mercer is, is some kind of quasi religious immortal entity that seems to die every day, right? Suffer every day. So it really can't be real. So there's a kind of an equivalency between these. But again, one is the hackneyed plots of, of television. And the other is the authentic empathic experience that people share together. So Isidore finally arrives at the animal hospital. They find out very quickly that the cat is dead and it's not fake. But nevertheless, Isidore has this kind of general empathy. And that's one reason the co-workers kind of don't blame him entirely because he seems to have empathy for both the electronic creatures and, and the real ones. So that muffled him it made it or muffled his perception made it so he couldn't really see the difference. He says, one of the workers says, I don't think Isidore can tell the difference. To him, they're all alive, false animals included. He probably tried to save it. What did you do, try to recharge its battery or locate a short in it? And then Isidore admits, he did. Um, but nevertheless, it's really a horrific event to see a dead animal. Any dead animal is, is a horrific event for the people in this, this novel. Even later on in the story, the death of a spider is presented as one of the greatest horrors possible. Uh, Of course, this is a planet that's been depopulated of of life. Most most forms of life are gone. Most animals are extinct. The few that remain are just, you know, there's just a few. So anyways, uh, he has to call the owner of the cat and explain. And it seems they have some kind of insurance policy. So they said, we'll get you a new cat. We'll even help you pick it out. Maybe we can make an electric cat that will fool your husband. Those are kind of the options they give this woman, Mrs. Pilsen. And Isidore does a pretty good job of talking her through this and managing it. He has to get bailed out at some point in the conversation, but again, we're, we're, we get the idea that Isidore is, is not confident. He stammers. He's got some, I guess, psychological issues, but he's not he's not unintelligent. He he certainly understands the way the world works to some degree, and he, he's 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 got some creativity. He's he's able to think things through. So. It seems he's been unjustly labeled a chicken head. It seems to me anyways. Um, but he makes the call and and that's worked out. So this chapter is is really about uh, the kind of Buster versus Mercer. It's about the real versus the animal and it's our first taste of this concept that's very, very important in this novel and that is empathy for non-living things, for, for androids or robots, right? That's... Something humans can have. Humans can have empathy for androids. What, they, what androids can't have is empathy for even each other, much less empathy for, for humans. So this is the big difference between, between them, right? The fact that humans have empathy for androids is not to the androids' credit. It, it's, it's, if anything, it's to their detriment, right? It's like if you can have empathy for a cr- cruel, vicious murderer that lacks any remorse or any feeling of empathy, then, you know, that's to your credit as an empathic creature, right? It doesn't mean they have any morality or any moral right to even exist. This is what Deckard's going to struggle with in the second half of the novel. Pretty much the whole second half of the novel is about this conflict within Deckard when he realized that he himself has empathy for, for androids, but at least women, female androids. So then chapter eight. Chapter eight is about Deckard's encounter with Polokoff. So this is the first android on the list. Why is it first? Well, this is the one that already had the, the test. The, the Holden, who failed, was shot by Polokov, already done the test. So this guy's already been determined to be an android. And so Decker just has to find him and retire him. His boss calls him and tells him that there's a WPO agent who's come to aid him. Now, this WPO agent is from the Soviet Union. So they're also interested in rounding up these androids. So he's going to come and help. So he goes to ask Polokoff about his work and he works at, or he goes to the workplace of Polokoff and asks where Polokoff is. He works for Bay Area um, Scavenge. So essentially he worked with Kippel. And here's the moment in which we learn that through Deckard's stream of consciousness that it's actually the concept of Kippel came from Buster Friendly. He's the one who invented that. It's become kind of popular parlance, but he invented the concept. So he breaks, he then, when he doesn't get a real lead from the employer, he goes to break into Poldekoff's apartment. He has a skeleton key that helps him do this, and he's got no luck. He figures he's moved on to Mars. But he thinks, maybe I'll just go on to the next android, Luna Luft. So Luna Luft, they know a bit about. I think actually Deckard has these dossiers on each of these androids. So, you know, kind of Holden already did all the hard work, detective work. And it's very convenient for the novel. Because you don't have to see Deckard doing all this detective work. He just has kind of inherited all the hard work. Lululuf is posing as an opera singer. And so his plan then is to pose as an opera fan. And Deckard seems to know a lot about opera and high culture. So he thinks he can confidently pose as an as a opera fan. So on the way there, he meets up with this WPO agent, Sandor Cadillus. And before long, Deckard figures out that this is actually Polokoff posing as as his Soviet agent. He trips him up on a logical kind of uh, trick, almost something almost out of Looney Tunes, right? You know how like Bugs Bunny will say no when he wants you to say yes. If you go no, yes, no, yes, back and forth and Bugs Bunny will change it to you know, the other one and then that trips up the other person. That's kind of what Deckard does to Polokoff here. He says like, you're not Polakoff, you're like that Kandilas. And then he says, what? I'm not Kandilis. I'm Polikov. And So he exposes himself this way in a kind of in one of the few moments of humor in this entire novel. Uh, there's a little bit of a conflict. Actually, Rick was in danger for his life for a bit, but Deckard is able to retire Polakoff. He calls his wife, kind of with the good news that he's on his way to retiring these six androids but she's already kind of entering into her her six-hour self-accusatory despair which she had planned for herself and um you know decker doesn't really have time to deal with that now so he goes on to to meet uh luna Loof, the second android he plans to to retire he does though worry that he's going to eventually have to get help from rachel rosen which is something he does not really want to do He doesn't want anything to do with with her or, or androids helping her or the rosen corporation so that does it for the second, uh, my second part of my review of Duantry's Dream of Electric Sheep? In the next part, I'll look at chapters eight through 13. So I think that's, that's um, yeah, eight through 13. So it's a quite a big chunk of the novel. It's a little bit longer. It'll take a little bit longer to go through this part. Well, the core here is, there's a lot going on in this third part of the novel. Uh, the heart of it is a fake police station in which run by androids that uh, and the realization by Rick Deckard that he has empathy for for androids. And then that's going to lead us into the second half of the novel, which is really this moral conflict within Deckard over his job and his future. So um, that's going to be all for now, though. So let me know what you think about Mercerism and its relationship with Buster Friendly. Let me know what you think about uh Isidore's concept, how he defines Kipple. Uh, are there broader applications of this concept of kipple? Should we be talking more about the, the human kipple, maybe in our own world? Um, and yeah, I think those are the main themes in this part of the novel. Um, so, or what about the corporate attitude towards technology? You know, should we have a more democratic relationship uh, to technology? Should we think more seriously about what technologies we incorporate into our into our society, or should we just let the marketplace of ideas play out and 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 let the chips fall where they may. So um, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with part three of my review. and contentment forever if you're